love fun. Stephen does that look thing. How young like, Rory fun. looks. He looks so young. So young. He's either been to a wedding, which is impossible at the moment, or he's been on yeah. television. Which is it, Rory? No, neither. I just. Oh, I was, really? I was quite itchy, so I shaved. It's taking years off you. It does. I know that's why I don't like shaving. I look. I look like a child. So you don't want to look younger? No, I want to look older. He's going to save it till he's 60, then he'll shave and we'll all go, oh my God, he's 50 again. I've, I've always been cursed, Chinch, by looking extremely young. It's a oh, curse, is it? It's, it's a, a curse. It's a yeah. curse. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It must, I, don't know how you, I don't know how you get by. No, I'd quite like to look my age, to be honest. But I, when I, How when old I, are you? I'm 38. But when, um, you look about 22. Apart from around the eyes, where I, look, I do very much look my age. But if you wear dark glasses... If I was wearing dark glasses indoors, then there'd be questions. <laughs> it would be something very much a 22-year-old would still be doing. I've seen, people at, the, I've seen people at the gym, mainly young women, training with dark glasses on. What's that really? all about? Yeah, people go, you know, people go out running. I understand that. Even though it's not sunny, they run in dark glasses. There's people wearing them in the gym now to exercise. Is, what, what are they doing? Is that to shield their eyes from the radiance of your beauty? <laughs> Uh, I've never thought about it. Never thought or about are it. Are they thought... bulletproof for when the guns come out? Uh, oh, yeah. oh, nice yeah. one, Hugh. Yeah. Nice yeah. one. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Yeah, because it is a real. It's turning into a real uh, fashion battle in the gym. Not not me personally. I look terrible. But there is, you know, people with their hoods up. Uh, people wearing dark glasses, wearing caps. Caps. <laughs> wear caps. Cap was wearing caps anyway, few, but caps in the gym. A few people in full three-piece suits. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually a guy in there the other day that I know very well, but he's quite a, a big meaty chap, so I didn't want to laugh too hard at him. But he forgot his trainers, and he had to go into the gym with full training kit on and his lace-up shoes on. Oh, nice. Like school shoes? School shoes, basically, yeah. And I, I kind of... Uh, I kind of mentioned... You had to mention it. You had to mention it, but I didn't mention it too strongly in case he decked me. What did you say? I said, Ha, ha, ha! <laughs> Why are you wearing those... School shoes, big guy, and he uh, we had a damn good laugh about it. But he he, he still trained, he wasn't gonna, he couldn't go in in bare feet. But he thought, I'm here, I'm gonna train. I'll put my school shoes on. He did all he could do, he trained, he went straight to geography. <laughs> Was it like how, when how much time do you get for break these days? 20 minutes <laughs> when you've got to work out at eight, but there's a really important meeting at nine, yeah, yeah. Next week, he'll be forgetting his shorts. <laughs> and Chinch will immediately be right over there and having a laugh about that too. What, why are you wearing those pants? Which, which is a sentence that could be taken two ways. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are these three gentlemen, accompanied by the song name from Scottish rocker Jerry Rafferty that best describes them. Stephen Wyeth, who is very much a night owl. Rory Smith, who would definitely subscribe to the message of whatever's written in your heart. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who would appreciate that the two other centre-backs in Glenn Hoddle's 3-5-2 England team might feel stuck in the middle with you. Um, <laughs> the food is um, a, a cottage pie, I'd like to tell you all about, uh, created for the wife and I um, to completely diminish her role in the process, which is completely accurate as well, because I did it all and got very stressed about it. A cottage pie, I've never made a cottage pie before, but I want to tell you that I now have a recipe for cottage pie that will knock your socks off. So if anybody in the next two to three years, because that's when we'll next see each other, wants a cottage pie, I will create this cottage pie. And the trick is, as I'm sure anybody who's created a cottage pie before, Worcestershire sauce. Mm. 
I do not like cottage pie oh, right. and therefore do not want the recipe. And by the time we can see each other again, who knows what sort of meat is going to be available to put <laughs> in a cottage pie. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Um, I've got a feeling like a footballing salmon making its way back home. We're going to swim in the mainstream. <laughs> is, that, is that correct? The first time that he actually had something prepared and it was worth the 100 episodes of waiting. We are indeed talking about footballers in the mainstream. There are those who are content to remain sufficiently in the shadows to still be confused for Don Goodman on a Sky Sports broadcast. But then again, there are others. Football may well be the nation's most popular sport, but it still operates in enough of a bubble for around 99% of its players to be relative unknowns when it comes to that larger part of society that has more of an interest in Strictly Come Dancing than Dominic Calvert-Lewin. The latest to break out of that bubble is Marcus Rashford for, we should immediately say, the most legitimate of reasons. But what awaits him now that he is a footballer in the mainstream? And how much can we learn from players who have forged that path in the past? Uh, that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Twitter, Facebook and our YouTube channel provide you with more content on an almost daily basis. We start with this from James Montgomery. Hi, team. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I wouldn't normally email, but I just wanted to say thank you to you all and Rory in particular. Having been in hospital for a couple of days since Friday to have my gallbladder out, a mix of morphine, the last few episodes of Set Piece Menu, and also Radio 5 Live, got me through the post-op phase. Probably wasn't your intention, but as well as keeping me occupied and entertained, your collective soothing tones were very relaxing. Even if I have heard at two to three different times, just how much time Rory has spent worrying about Burnley over the last few years. That's Thanks, true, I keep only up the good work. Thanks. It's a great podcast. Thanks. Uh, James, don't get carried away though, team, because the audience giveth and the audience taketh away. In fact, this email has a bit of both. This is from Morris Cole. Hello, folks. I've been sitting on this question for a while, but since my cousin, Ed Cole, emailed last week, and in a bid to show the world who the better Cole is, I thought that now was as good a time as ever to make my first contribution to the pod. Rather appropriately, it was Ed who first introduced me to Set Piece Menu way back in the SPM 40s. And among my favourites are episode 88, Relegation, episode 173, the SPM European Super League, and best of all, episode 94, Houses, which has inspired the naming of my five-a-side team, House FC. You'll be very glad to know that single-handedly I've increased the SBM listenership by a grand total of one person, introducing it to my mate, Asheen. And SBM has become such an integral part of our friendship that his 18th birthday present to me was a very fetching homemade poster of Rory Smith captioned dot, 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 but. Oh, which come takes on, place on my bedroom wall. <laughs> this is indeed 100% true, he says. Please don't think we're creeps, Rory. That's fine. No, I'm flattered. <laughs> Bedroom wall, though. But I don't want to meet. <laughs> yeah. We both thoroughly enjoyed Rory's recent enthusiasm for Zugma and came up with a few ourselves. Among the best were, I walked to school and the talk, and I pissed in the toilet and off. However, since becoming a regular listener, I have noticed a pretty substantial change to the way that I think about football. I'm a fan of Crystal Palace, and I tried to get to a handful of home games a season. Before I listened to Set Piece Menu, I would more than happily follow along with the unconscious tribal mentality of the average fan in assuming that the entire media had a biased agenda against my team, feeling perfectly comfortable shouting four-letter expletives at the referee, regardless of how correct the decision was, and holding the kind of football-based opinions influenced by knee-jerk reactions, the kind you'd hear on the average talk sport radio phone-in. You know the ones. But in hearing a developed and thoughtful football discussion every Wednesday, you chaps have genuinely taught me to think more perceptively about football and encouraged a more considered approach. For this, I am very grateful. And I was all very smug about this until I started to realise that I had actually begun to slowly lose interest in football. 
Yeah. Well, I feel it like now I'm less susceptible to wild knee-jerk reactions. I'm also less susceptible to the euphoria that greets the high-tension moments of a football match. Which begs the question, can you only really enjoy the full drama of football by submitting to the stereotypes of the match-going fan? And does an intellectual outlook take away the heat of that moment hysteria, which makes live sports so attractive? Keep up the good work from Morris Cole, who, despite his name, is 18 years old. Is Morris Cole? He's a, he's a character on Coronation Street, isn't he, Morris Cole? No? Norris. Norris Cole? Norris Cole. Maybe. Norris Cole. Very, but this Norris. is the problem. You see, Stephen Rory, for all your intelligent informative analysis of football and how we perceive it. This is the problem you're, you're causing now. You've got fans who, who just go to games to shout expletives at referees. You're now making them think about the game. And once you think about anything, you just, it, it loses its appeal. You stand, you stand charged with this. How do you, how do you respond? Well, well set piece menu, ruining football for listeners one at a time. <laughs> this is, I, Hang on, did we, are we, have we not been on the same page? I, th- I thought the whole point of this podcast was slowly to make people not want to think about football anymore. Yes. I, think that, I thought that was why we'd, why we'd eat it out over 200 episodes. I, th- I, I thought that was our mission. I'm sorry. Your previous yeah. focus on insidious tomatoes is actually now transferring to the insidious distancing of people from the game that they previously loved. If they just see, see it for the absurdity, then maybe they'll all lose interest and we can talk about something else, something that actually matters. It is death by a thousand cuts and we are already 20% of the way there. <laughs> can we get a photo of the poster? Uh, yes, by all means, Morris, if you're able to send a photo of the poster to us, setpiecemenu at gmail.com, we'd be very grateful for it. And I Rory don't want that as a Christmas distance. present, Rory. <laughs> I don't it. download it, print it I'm off. We don't it want copies. Thank you. Craig O'Callaghan is just one of the substantial flow of emails we're getting about a European Super League. It is entitled The West Brom Conundrum. Hi all, says Craig. This is a truly earnest and genuine opening sentence about how much I love the pod and all your fine work. It's followed by a second sentence in which I pivot from my gushing praise to the matter at hand. How do you solve the fatal flaw of a European Super League? Namely, that the novelty will wear off over time and there'll always be a need to have a West Brom or other clubs, and they are indeed available for unflattering comparisons. Easy. Just do it, he says, every four years. Picture this. One season out of four, the top six in the previous year's league disappear off to play in the ESL. In their absence, promote a couple of extra championship teams to create a Premier League of 16 teams. Yes, interest might dip without the big six, but it would give smaller teams a genuine chance of silverware. And the shorter season could be an ideal way for English players at smaller clubs to get some of that much-needed pre-World Cup rest we're always hearing is so important. Institute a rule that ESL games cannot clash with domestic matches, and hopefully interest won't dip too much. You could even have a quite strict squad restriction for the ESL with the goal of encouraging ESL clubs to loan players back to the domestic league rather than have them warming the bench. How do you return to normal for the following season? A bigger relegation zone to get you back to a 20-team league. The top team from the 16-team Premier League gets Champions League football along with the three highest ranked English sides in the ESL. Europa League places go to the second best domestic side and the winners of the FA Cup, which the ESL side still compete in, and the League Cup, which they don't. Bonus, suddenly the FA Cup is relevant again, as the only chance of a European place for half of the big six is guaranteed. Of course, none of this is preferable to actually throwing the whole Super League concept in the bin. But if we're all coming up with ideas in the pub for the future of football, I thought I might as well suggest this one. That is from Craig. I think Craig should focus on his idea of throwing the whole concept in the bin and dispense with everything that preceded it. That's, that, that's precisely the problem with you, Steve. That the thing is... <laughs> well, I, I, I can only focus on the, the bit I heard last. Yeah, well, <laughs> partly that, but 
that that doesn't necessarily float my boat as an idea, but I think we should commend him for thinking outside the box, which football does so rarely. And also, the, it, it won't be thrown in the, in the bin because Andrea Agnelli will threaten it about once every three months and Florentino Perez will keep on trying to come up with ideas to make it work. So we, I think, I don't particularly want it. And I don't think, I don't think, it, I, I, I think as we said before, it's not great either for the clubs who'll go into it or the clubs who are left behind. But I think we have to accept that this idea is kind of there and it's incumbent on us to try and come up with a way to make it, if it, if it were to happen, to make it as palatable as possible. Yeah. I'm very happy for the workshopping to take place entirely in the correspondence section of each weekly set piece menu because I'm enjoying it very much indeed. Michael Obanubi has combined that subject with the one from last week, which was the rebuild. Hi, you guys are great. Thanks for all the content and for the culinary advice. Michael has clearly not been listening very hard over the course of the last eight months. Just thought I would add my tuppence worth of insight, read the discussions on the Super League. Like many, my first instinct is to say that I'm not particularly interested in the idea and kind of agree with the West Brom. Uh, let's, well, he says analogy, let's call it the West Brom conundrum as it was by Craig. However, when I look at the current state of European football, I do wonder where the hell do the likes of Bayern and Juventus go next? For how many years do fans across Europe watch the same team win the league over and over again? For instance, you discussed last week that Bayern have efficiently gone through that quiet rebuild over the last year or so, but it, it is also fair to point out that they made two or three bad managerial appointments over the last few years and still won their league. Juve have appointed someone with basically no managerial experience and will probably finish first or second. I like to think that I am a football fan that actually enjoys watching good football some form of fairish competition with something at stake. And I really wonder sometimes whether the vast majority of games actually fit that definition. Overall, I don't think that the European Super League is the answer, but is what we have now any good? Across Europe, there are far too many meaningless and uncompetitive games between sides that are badly matched in uncompetitive leagues. If we look across different sports, surely there are some ideas to move things forward because I'm regularly bored by what I see, apart from after the quarterfinals of the Champions League. That is from Mike. I'm not sure this season's the best example of that, particularly if you look across certainly the Premier League, uh, La Liga, Sociedad, Sociedad at top in La Liga, Juve struggling a bit, in, not struggling, but you know, the Juve hot and cold in Serie A. There have been years, he's quite right, there have been years when, when Bayern have, have won the lead but not been great. I think it would be hard to take this season as an example of, of the Bundesliga being uncompetitive when Bayern are so good and almost certainly the best team in Europe. But, you know, and, and PSG started badly in France and all that. So I think that this year might be slightly more chaotic than normal. Um, but yeah, the broader point is true. Like, where do, where do Bayern and Juve and, and the Spanish bid two go, given that they just win the league every single season PSG? Um, but then the flip side of that is that fans don't seem to get bored of it. And I think there is a point at which the kind of chaos we're seeing in the Premier League probably puts people off to an extent. Michael might have struck on something interesting, though, in, in that email that... In the past, dominating your domestic division would have just been satisfactory for for club owners because the the fan base would have been pleased about that and they they would celebrate it season in season out. Maybe as as people become more aware of what is happening in football in other countries, that that one team dominance may no longer be as satisfactory as it has been in the past, and maybe that is one of the reasons we're seeing the the agitation for it around about now that that more. The, the, the desire for a more competitive competition might be motivating some of those super clubs that, you know, the likes of Bayern, Juventus, PSG, etc. Is, is there a flip side, though, that you look at... So I think we can, all, we can all be pretty confident in saying that whoever wins the Premier League this year will get between like 80 and 85 points. It's not going to be a 90, 98, 99, 100-point season. 
at the end of this season, if the season ends, there will be a whoever wins it will it there will be a vast sort of section of the of of the football firmament who declares it in in some way an illegitimate title because they haven't got enough points to win it properly and they'll say that it was a you know it was a crap premier league and it was it wasn't very good and the, the standard the standard was so poor that they just they won it by default or whatever and i wonder if that's because we look across europe and we see these these dynastic teams winning things racking up records we've got so used to seeing kind of champions being unbeaten or they've only dropped four points or they've you know they've they've won 18 games in a row we've got so used to kind of seeing that, that level of dominance that we now kind of associate that as being the only true expression of excellence and the idea of when united won the treble in 1999 they got 79 points 30 would have been sacked even if can, so can we count that as illegitimate then, being a former City player? Can we now categorically <laughs> say was that the they didn't really win the league title that season because they I think only, that's got the, less that than 18 only, points? That's embarrassing. That is the only available conclusion. That's relegation form. Oh, it should awful. be the first to 80 points. And if nobody gets to 80 points, then there is no league title uh, uh, distributed. If you win the Premier League this season with less than 80 points, you get the Premier League trophy, but it's an inflatable one. <laughs> That's you can hold that up. You can send all the fireworks off, but it's an inflatable Premier League trophy. How about that? Finally, from Drew Savage, who I think we've now mentioned enough as a BBC colleague, but he helped me with a computer problem this week, so his reward is getting on the show. Thanks, Drew. Hello, chaps, and congratulations on your 200th episode. I used to save up SPM for my train trips to London, and it'd make the journeys fly by. And then all that sort of thing stopped because of what Hugh very aptly refers to as all this. Then I discovered the magic formula of listening to you while running. And I did a lot of running during lockdown. Nearly everywhere I have been, set piece menu has come with me and made the miles more enjoyable. I accidentally did a half marathon at least twice while listening to SPM. I was enjoying the pod and just kept running and running. But around that time, people started writing in about bears. And I realized that I couldn't top that. So I didn't write in. Although there is a place near called Brinnington. And believe me, it's quite scary enough running around those housing estates without bears being involved. Anyway, I was enjoying SPM 198 the other day and the return of the out-of-context reacher feature. And then Chinch said something that stopped me in my tracks. He wasn't happy about the choice of Alan Richon to play Jack in the upcoming TV series and said the producers should just go out and scour the streets of Stockport until they found their man. And at that very moment, I was actually running around the streets of Stockport. It just so happens that the running thing that I'd started doing during lockdown was trying to run down every single street in Stockport. That's why I'd been to the bearless badlands of Brinnington, he says, and my two worlds had just collided. So Chinch's comment felt like a challenge that I just couldn't refuse. I just kept running, all the while looking out for Stockport's answer to the Jack Reacher casting problem. Inspired, I ended up running nine miles and thus listened to all of SPM 194 as well. He's like a Brillington Forest Gump, isn't he? <laughs> Didn't see him, I'm afraid. Maybe it's because it was raining, but I promise I will continue to pound the streets of Stockport listening to SPM and looking for our man. Don't know what I will do if I do clock him. Probably sneak a photo and then run like hell. Keep on keeping on, guys. SPM is a ray of light. And luckily, not a ray at a belt of light in a somewhat cloudy world. All the best, Drew, who has still never read a Jack Reach novel, but it's a treat that he is saving up. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If he keeps running, keeps covering the miles, he has to run into a Jack Reacher type person. It's inevitable, isn't it? It'd be a miracle if he didn't. Do you think he's likely to, to run into a bear before he, he runs into the correct... In Brinnington? <laughs> Not really. You're more likely to hit a Jack Reacher character than a bear. It's 2020, though, Chinch. Everything's up in the air. It could be that after a while, the bears are just let loose from whatever... What's the nearest zoo to Stockport? 
Um, Chester. 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 Yeah, they might. Yeah, so what are you going to get a grizzly bear roaming the street? I'd like to see his face if he turned a corner and didn't see Jack Reacher, but came across a big hungry grizzly. The Welsh might armour them and release them on the border. Something like that. Ch- Chester is too far away for it to ever reach Brillington without being intercepted somewhere along the M56. Mm. One of the programs my kids watch regularly is a, is a CBBC type of thing about Chester Zoo. And there was an entire episode of it they watched the other day, which was specifically about the animals that escape from Chester Zoo, which I thought was a strange thing to draw attention to. Let's start with lions. Kids, are you settled in? <laughs> how, how, how often do things escape and how good are they? Come on, kids, let's go for a good country walk in Chester. They, they, try, they try to brush over it by just sort of featuring the harmless animals. But you think, well, if, yeah, if, the, if, the, if the small harmless animals are getting out, then surely the ferocious ones that have got the, the determination to do so have got their opportunity. The cunning apex predators are all over the shop in Chester. It is time to talk about football's relationship with the mainstream. Firstly, how best to describe the mainstream? For those of us in the UK... It's BBC One, the Radio 2 breakfast show, the front pages of the newspapers rather than the back. There is, without turning this into a seminar on media demographics, a difference in my mind between the mainstream and mainstream media, which for me is more a reference to network news outlets. And although there is a crossover in audience with, let's say, BBC Breakfast being a good example of that, the mainstream is a slightly more intangible, mystical construct that content providers are attempting to tap into court and win the eyeballs of. So what happens when a footballer moves from those back pages to the front, from matches to the mainstream? For reasons fabled, fair or foul, there are several examples which easily spring to mind. All the way from George Best in the 1960s through Paul Gascoigne and David Beckham to the modern cases of Raheem Sterling, and most recently, now Marcus Rashford. Today's episode will attempt to quantify what changes for that player, how they are newly perceived and how that can swing wildly from positive to negative, and whether being in the mainstream can actually tell us more about fame than the footballer. Now, I appreciate that on most episodes, I now relent and let others begin, but at the risk of having my voice even more weighted to the beginning of the episode, please hereby pay attention to a rant. Basically, this is happening because for the first time in a long time, Hugh has come up with an idea for the podcast, <laughs> so he's going to we need a oh fact Mark. Oh my god, he's, he's written, he's written go it down it. as well. It must be really important, Steve. Look, he's he's getting his back like a newsreader. He's getting his news. Oh, his papers aligned. Is this is serious stuff? Everything we he says on up. the pod. Everything he says on the podcast is written down, Ginch. Is we it? Need a, we need a huge dot and opinion, Claxton. Here we go. <laughs> it's such a rare thing. Um, he's I taking to... his top off and he's ready to go. <laughs> I've put my school shoes on and I'm going to pack <laughs> some iron. <laughs> I want to start by saying something about the relationship between sport. And the mainstream generally. Having spent 10 years in commercial radio and then parts of the next 10 contributing to both Radio 2 and BBC Breakfast, I claim at least some relevant experience. I should also say at the outset, considering what's going to come, that I consider the telling of non-mainstream sports stories to the mainstream on both the Radio 2 Breakfast Show and BBC Breakfast genuinely, genuinely the most enjoyable broadcasting that I do. It may well be the only thing that I'm good at, but please remember that. Uh, as a context for what is to follow. All of that has led me to believe that sport generally breaks through to the mainstream for two reasons. It is either on the occasion of a significant event or if a sports person does something of particular note outside of the sport that they play. Just, just a side note, um, Steve's John. As soon as you started talking, <laughs> Steve left to make coffee. 
<laughs> oh, you're still listening, are you? You're still, still listening, listening, Steve, are you? I've got, the, I've got the long cable on the headphones. We're all good. It's I'm, a very little percolator. I'm, it should drown him out, hopefully. I've, I've, for, for some reason, I've made myself a coffee, and it's not very good, so it's getting replaced quickly. I, I love the fact that uh, the levels of respect that Stephen uh, has for my opinion that he may well have heard before are immediately <laughs> and quite clearly uh, referenced by the fact that he's walking away from any sort of contribution. So on the former of those two, it appears remarkable to me how some of those who shape the content for a mainstream audience are so often so patronizing about sport other than those significant events, given how figures show that they have the potential to provide those outlets with some of the biggest shares of that audience in history. Sport moves numbers if it has such value in a world cup for example why are some of those mainstream programmers privately at least happy to marginalize it at other times and if it is to make it to air why must that story that feature that event be dumbed down for fear of alienating the part of the audience that isn't a devotee is the test for other subjects as rigorous i have a theory on this yes that was just the preamble i would suggest someone reductively <laughs> that when something is popular, new or old, a them and us develops. How often have you seen new craze being adopted by so many and scoffed at in equal measure by those who don't? Whether it's because it's never been a part of that person's life or there is perhaps a little embarrassment that they've missed the boat on something, instead of discovering and learning more, attempting to appreciate what it is that so many are enamored with and must therefore have some value, there is an instinct to disengage and then to diminish. Given that sport is enjoyed to a very enthusiastic extent by so many, perhaps this only serves to intensify that antipathy. It appears to be a zero-sum game. If it's not something that I myself get, I shall reject. No middle ground. The Stephen Wyeth attitude to NFL, the Rory Smith attitude to cricket, the Andy Hinchcliffe attitude to defending. Perhaps it is the mainstream content provider's version of a football fan's inability to lean into disappointment or experience hurt, something that we've spoken about on this podcast a great many times, without lashing out at rival fans or referees instead. I say that you don't have to be interested, but in this example, it is your job to find out why others are and tell that story to the audience. Two things as a sidebar. One, this is a small brush with which I tar only very few based on my own experiences. And two, I am not blameless in this. For example, I would rather not watch episodes of Little Mix The Search every Saturday night, even though there is clearly much to recommend it. This, in my massively cynical opinion, manifests itself in the mainstream's relationship with any sport that doesn't involve Andy Murray, Tom Daly, or the England football team once every two years, i.e. sport that appeals to the demographic predominantly engaging with those media outlets that I mentioned before. If that is indeed the backdrop, now let's consider those specific examples of footballers who, like Murray and Daly, have crossed what I have clearly decided is a divide and how much that might annoy me because I believe it is this context which shapes the relationship. Just End a... of rant. Did that was like a listen? stump speech, wasn't it? Do we, not, do we just sort of disperse from the park now? <laughs> is he finished? <laughs> did did, did anybody did they wear masks whilst they were watching that stump speech? Because I recommend that you do. The, I think, Hugh, to be fair, I think that we can talk about the footballers in a minute, but I think the idea of, of how kind of the, the mainstream, mainstream culture treats sport is really interesting. As a fan, you do always watch those kind of mi those melange programs, the ones that are kind of trying to be everything. Breakfast, The One Show, all that stuff. And there's loads in the States, and I imagine that they have them in every country. And you do think, well, look, actually, look, sport would be a really easy win for you here because of your X million viewers. A substantial proportion of them would be interested in it. And 
a, you know, a, a significant portion would, would tolerate its appearance. The vast majority of people aren't really watching anyways. They're getting the kids ready. And there might, yeah, there might be a few people who, who kind of really object to the idea that sport is intruding in the same way as whenever, whenever like a Wimbledon semi-final goes to five sets, there's always people who complain that the tennis is on BBC One instead of a rerun of whatever nonsense they like to watch on a Friday if, evening. If EastEnders has to be moved, and I remember when the Champions League was on ITV, they were absolutely furious the watchers of coronation street that coronation street had to move that week it would be moved to seven o'clock to seven thirty instead of seven thirty, and, and that was that was an outrage the tyranny of the vanilla of the vanilla mainstream is no better illustrated than what happened on sunday night saturday night when was it when was johnson's press conference uh saturday night which little mix yeah. the search live show so boris johnson has a press conference the british prime minister to announce that we're all going back into another lockdown for, in inverted commas, four weeks. And th- they stopped it to put Strictly Come Dancing on. The BBC cut away from the press conference. But here's the thing. They, they had, and genuinely, they had Little Mix The Search, which is considered just one notch below in terms of importance. Why does he to keep that... mentioning Little Mix The Search? Because he's he, per mention. Has he entered? Because are, I, you in the, are you in the thrall of Little Mix? Are you in the pay of Little Mix? What's going on here? But they moved. They had a live show planned for the time that Boris Johnson was speaking. And they just cancelled it to have Boris Johnson on. But they didn't cancel Strictly. Mm. Which just gives you a, a, a kind of a league division of primetime mainstream interest in the, in the shows that were on BBC so, One on Saturday so night. So that happens with everything, though. It happens with, with news events. It happens with tennis. It happens with, you know, with cricket. It happens with, every, with, with football, particularly. It's, there's this objection from people who don't like sport that sport is on their TV. And they seem, they seem to be of the view, and there's probably some merit in it, that it should be ghettoised and that you should have like a sports play, a place where sport happens. But what, the one thing that I do find really odd about it is that not only is sport such a powerful kind of vehicle in our culture, and it's not, there, there won't be many people who don't know quite a lot of people who like sport. But you kind of think, well, these channels that are meant to, these, or these, these content providers that are trying to appeal to lots and lots of people, you, you do realise they're not just for you, don't you? Like, they're for, they're for everybody. And I, I find it really odd that, that with sport in particular, that when it intrudes on people's other forms of culture it seems to be resented particularly kind of spikily almost there's this real kind of sense of there is enough sport why would i want to watch sport no one you know i don't want to watch this so nobody must want to watch it and it's really there is a real them and us with sport which is very odd when you think about i don't know think the 66 million people in this country how many of them don't like any sport at all it's probably relatively few. It will be a few million, but it's probably relatively few, isn't it? Doesn't it seem to be that sport is kind of something that, or maybe certain people see it as something that you choose to be involved in or choose to watch or, or take part in? It, it's not actually, as you say, part of mainstream culture. It's something outside of that. When it dips its toe, when sport gets involved or sports men get involved, they don't seem to have sports or the, the people that play or the, the professionals don't seem to have a legitimate voice and people don't really listen to them. So they feel, well, you're kind of outside the mainstream. You're not really part of this. So how can you know anything about what's happening in what we consider to be our lives? But Rory's right. It's, it's about the amount, I think, which gives rise to, to that feeling of antipathy. And, and sports constancy is, is its problem, if you like. It suffers because of it, because it does dip its toe into the mainstream for, for World Cups, for European Championships, for the Olympics, for Wimbledon, particularly when there's a British player um, who has a chance of doing well in it. And there seems to be a sense that that's enough mm. and any more 
should be confined to the realms of the niche. It's not going to have a full-time role. Yeah, and I it's think only that, when big events come along that it, it's kind of, well, we'll, we'll okay, we'll, we'll take that for, for as long as it lasts. And, and then you are going to leave, aren't you? And if it's I, not that, then I don't understand why it should play a part because I have grown up watching mainstream productions of these events. I do not want to have that infiltrated by something that is either new or additional. And I think that that, that's, that tends to be the problem that, that Rory just articulated about the fact that you would imagine that there would be so many of this, so much a large percentage of this audience that you are catering for that is interested. But there is also a feeling from those people that there is enough sport around. And if it is not within that framework, then it doesn't necessarily need to be considered. And to be fair, there's probably quite a lot of merit to that argument that if you... I mean, I don't, don't know idea what the figures are. And, and to be honest, you, kind of, you, you look at it, you know, even Sky, when they've got one of their, you know, really big game, one of their, their kind of elite co-commentators, John Goodman, mm. Danny Hiddenbotham, someone like that, on, 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 the, on the telly, you're looking at kind of the, the biggest games get sort of two and a half, three million viewers, which is not a lot. Ultimately, it's not a lot. So I wonder if there is, obviously that's paid for TV, which, which changes it. But and it is a lot for that. Yeah, yeah, but it's not a lot in terms of the, the, the over, it's not like 30 million people are tuning in, even, you know, Man City, Liverpool this weekend will not attract an audience, even, even a, a, a quarter of what a World Cup group stage game would get, you know, it's not, it's not that level, it's, it is, it's well, the audience for Little Mix. The, the audience but, for Little Mix. We but this is, so, so, I don't, not, not wanting to disrupt your flow, but that, that this is an interesting facet of the conversation is that those figures are sometimes you know, they can you compare two and a half million for a big premier league game on sky with 15 million for the strictly come dancing finale and it's just not a reasonable comparison two and a half million on subscription cable satellite television whatever you want to call it is big numbers sky aren't getting that for anything else yeah no that's true and it's in equally, you know, you, you think about things like Soccer Saturday and B the, the vastly superior BT Sports Straw, and they, um, they, that's, that, there's about 750,000 people who watch those two things. And that's, that's on a Saturday afternoon, which is, you know, people have got stuff to do. People are shopping, they're with the kids, whatever they're doing. They, play, they might be playing sport, not anymore, back in lockdown. But Saturday afternoon is not a time for a, for a massive audience, but you're still getting up, up towards a million people watching some people tell you what's happening on TVs that they're watching, which in itself is a fairly remarkable phenomenon. So I guess, yeah, I guess that the tension is there is no phenomenon in culture like sport and broadly by sport, we do mean football. There's nothing else comes close to, to touching it over the course of a year. But even, even that phenomenon, the biggest cultural phenomenon we have is still a niche interest to the vast majority of people. And yet, Steve's totally right. If you made people pay for Strictly, they probably wouldn't. I have a big thing. I must have done my one show theory with you before. But it fits into the narrative of this conversation, so do it yeah, again. Yeah, so the people watch the one show because it's what's on. And I, I think people, I don't know how it works abroad. I'm fascinated by this. When you turn most televisions on, well, to be fair, when you turn most televisions on now, they come on whatever channel you left them on. But the, for a long time, most channels, most TVs turned on to BBC One. And you turn the TV on, it was BBC One. So whatever's on, when people come home from work and they put the TV on while they're cooking or, or while they're kind of pottering or whatever, whatever people do when they come home from work, like, like Chinch, you know, just, just lifting some, some weights, just casually lifting a few weights. Yeah. What Chinch does when he comes home from not working. Yeah. The, 
the chances are you can have something on in the background and it's trying to wallpaper TV, the one show. It, it's not really for anyone, but it's kind of for everyone. It's inoffensive. It's very well done and it's a, it's a, it must be a really hard balance to strike. So it's not a criticism. So people tend to watch kind of what's on to an extent. That's a, that's a, a really underestimated part of... But they don't know why they're actually watching it. It's just because well, it's on. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, a, a journalist called Harriet Marsden who was um, who freelances for the Sunday Times and stuff who I, who I follow, who's very, who's very good value on Twitter. And... She was what does that, that mean? Very good value. Is that good she's or just, bad? She's funny but informative. I don't want to say she's funny because yeah. she's also quite informative. Uh, but you don't want to say she's she's informative. It makes it sound boring. She's just quite good on Twitter. She's, just good, she's at, good value. She's good yeah. on good value on Twitter. Yeah. It's free, so I mean, it's not a high bar to pass. But the um, that might be said about the one show as well. But she was saying that like she she watched the Johnson presser. And then, and then she watched Strictly because it was on telly, and actually suddenly found herself kind of sinking into the sequiny nonsense. How well Strictly would do if you put it on, I don't know, Skirmish? <laughs> <laughs> they should do that, really. On That's UK where it should be. UK TV Skirmish on Channel 173. I'm not sure, because people wouldn't find it. You, you could put pretty much anything on BBC One on a Saturday night and you'd get decent figures. And I think the problem is that those things then become by by default the kind of centerpieces of our culture it's self-perpetuating it's self-perpetuating so if you put but if you put football on bbc one on a saturday night a decent game of football would it rival strictly i think there's half a chance that it would yeah it it would and 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 sport is is a conflicting thing for for mainstream schedulers across all mediums because although it is a it's a good option for it's an audience winner because, you know, an, an England game at a World Cup finals guarantees you 10 million. And then it's upwards as they progress through the tournament. You, you're going beyond 20 million for a quarterfinal or a semifinal. So in that regard, you, look at, you would look at sport from a mainstream point of view and say, well, this is great. We are, that is eyes on the screen, ears on the radio. You can't get anything better than that. But what it also then brings is a level of complaint from the two-thirds of the audience who, who just simply are not interested. So despite the, the momentum behind the, the fervour that might go with an, an England reaching the, the latter stages of a World Cup, there will be people who complain about the prominence of sport on mainstream television. You won't get that with a Strictly. People will either watch it, and they do watch in large numbers, mm. or they won't. Sport fans are not writing into the BBC to complain that Strictly is on again on a Saturday night. Yeah. And they probably, when the last night of the proms overruns, as it always does, you think they'd build that in. It's, it's not a surprise. The last night of the proms, it goes long. Delays match of the day. There might be one or two complaints, but people just accept it because they know it's going to happen. Whereas if the start of Strictly was delayed by a live football match going to extra time, well, in fact, it, it wouldn't even happen. It wouldn't be there. They wouldn't run that risk. Mm of the football going to extra time and penalties. So that is why one of, the, one of the reasons why sport is so conflicting for the mainstream. Yes, it's a great audience winner, but it also generates fury from those who aren't interested. And does the mainstream's view of sport change from sport to sport? Would they view maybe football and footballers? Again, do we, are we talking about the financial aspect of football and how the mainstream might view that and say, I don't want to watch football. I don't want to listen to footballers talking about issues away from football. Do, do the finances come into it? Is it different from sport? Would they listen to Tom Daly rather than listen to 
a, a, a well-paid footballer talk. Does, does the sport, again, change how people view the message that's coming across? It yes, is the context in which they are, they are yeah. viewing that sport. So yeah. Tom Daly is an Olympian. So yeah. he is there for everything that he does of any note is in the Olympics because the mainstreams decided that diving as a sport outside of the Olympics has, has no value. So everything that he does of value to that mainstream takes place on terrestrial television in one of those events of great significance. And therefore, Tom Daly is a person, and I'm sure he's a great guy and he has many interesting things to say. This is nothing against him as a person. It's against the idea of, of how he is treated because of what he does when he does it and who watches it when he does that there is a sense that everything that Tom Daly says has significance because mm. of that relationship that he has built up with the mainstream. On only two or three occasions in his entire career has that happened, but that is enough of a foundation for him to now be a mainstream sports person and therefore of value. And him doing something which isn't sporting also has value because he is Tom Daly of the Olympics. Now, it's, we'll come on to talk about footballers and I appreciate that we set up this conversation by saying we were going to have a conversation about footballers. So we right. will come on to that. Well, we will, we will, but how about we do it next week? Because this is really, I think this is really interesting and I think this is a topic that warrants that, that level of in-depth analysis. From so are you saying that this page of notes can wait until next week? Well, think of it less, <laughs> less like your note, your note making has been rendered irrelevant and more like you've done your homework for next week already. <laughs> don't have to no, no, like no. If we're gonna, well, if we're going to do this, we've, we've got to impinge on Hugh's prep enough that he has to redo it. <laughs> right, okay. I'll make a very, very strict note about the things that I mentioned. I promise not to repeat so that because so nobody so repeats themselves on this podcast. That's with <laughs> sport in the mainstream we're going to talk about football in the mainstream as a separate is that what's happening well, just so i can write it down and remember for, for next time so we're going to do this is more kind of how the mainstream views sport yeah That's what this has become this is not look this is an organic podcast this is not yeah. this is just this is just four friends talking well, like mushrooms before. growing in a big pile of <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna evolve it's gonna sometimes, grow sometimes sometimes stuff happens we go off on a tangent and then next week we'll do what happens to a player what what is it that can kind of take a player I'm, I'm making an, exe an executive decision. This is very exciting. <laughs> this is why we have obviously very high profile pre-production meetings because yeah. this is where- When did this become a democracy, by the way? I thought just Hugh was the all-powerful leader, but clearly no, not. Hugh's the only organized, well, Hugh and Steve are the organized ones. Yeah, Me and you okay. just kind of pitch up. And, and what, this thing about organic, uh, I had that, that whole Chester Zoo thing was scripted. I said, <laughs> you not emailed that yet. <laughs> It's a th the, the first, and bear. <laughs> the first opinion I have ever stated that I have actually written down. So it actually had a beginning, middle and end. And already it's been completely uh, rendered pointless. Uh, but, but it's not pointless. Now we're going to take it on and expand it. It's a okay, great, exactly. that's such an important saying, point. We're going to expand it out okay, to two you're pods. You're saying, Chinch, that I'll just repeat it next week. Okay, that's absolutely Please. fine. I'm glad we're all agreed about that. But to, let's go back to the point about Tom Daly, which I was just, just finishing off. It's just that the, the point to say is that a, a, a mainstream darling, so I, I appreciate I've been speaking about the mainstream in a pejorative sense and I once again I say that I've broadcasted on the mainstream to mainstream audiences and enjoyed it incredibly so Tom Daly is a mainstream darling for example has his place in the mainstream secured and he now has a significance because not necessarily of the frequency or level to which he has performed in that mainstream it's the fact that he has done things in the mainstream and will therefore forever be considered somebody of value to that mainstream, when you're considering the value of a story that happens to have Tom Daly at the center of it. And Andy Murray, as I said earlier on, is another one of those people 
anything that Andy Murray does because he has achieved his sporting success in the mainstream. It has been reflected on by the mainstream. He now, anything he does, you know, gets a new dog, has a, has a child, every trial and tribulation he has with his fitness. Andy Murray's got a new dog. He's Serious got a dog. You see, you're not paying attention to the mainstream. Oh, sorry, sorry. But that, that, that is now, you have a place in the mainstream as a mainstream darling, he says, again, slightly dismissively, and that fashions every cover, piece of coverage thereafter. And it adds weight to something if you are attempting to get a sports story into the mainstream. Football does not have that very much apart from those examples that we'll talk about next week. But what fascinates me about that is that ultimately the likes of Andy Murray or Tom Daly have initially come to prominence through their sporting achievements. Yes, they have clearly, uh, they have benefited though as a consequence of that, of, of, because of what they do being shown live on the BBC at primetime, Wimbledon, the Olympics. So that is what's brought them to the mainstream consciousness. And again, that, that's where I find this is such a conflicting thing with sport in the mainstream, because it's almost as though there are these occasional athletes who come along. Jessica Ennis-Hill would be another, for example, who are lifted out of their sporting environments, placed into the mainstream. And it's not that what they've done previously is forgotten, but it's, all, it's treated as separate. In the same way as like the World Cup is essentially like a qualifying tournament for who wins Sports Personality of the Year, their Olympic success is very much their kind of audition to get on Strictly. That's how people see it. It's, it's kind of forgotten that they, they, people who are on, on those shows, who people who achieve that kind of absolute mainstream, Strictly come down saying advert for Santander, that kind of, that level of fame. Where, where, where they're not even famous, they're just kind of part of the na- national furniture. It's just everybody knows who Andy Murray is. Everyone knows who Jessica Ennis Hill is. Whatever route they took, whether that's sport or music or acting or whatever, is, ir- is irrelevant. They're just incredible. They just have this level of fame that is... The only people, I guess, who can match it are newsreaders. It's, it's not fame like... Red, it's not red carpet paparazzi fame. It is just that literally everybody in the country knows who you are. And is, is, is it inevitable? Is it unstoppable for people that the people you've just mentioned make that cross into the mainstream. I'm a bit cynical. Or is, it a, is it, again, your sports career only lasts a certain amount of time, agents involved in moving sportsmen into that environment? Or does it, is it, does it naturally flow that if you have success like Andy Murray and Tom Daly and, and Jessica Ennis-Hill, is it, is it, again, is it, is it that what takes them into it? There's no choice but to move into the mainstream. Well, people's conscience, you- or are they pushed that way by the people who work with them and represent them? Or is that would, me being I, really cynical? No, I think that, that I would presume that behind all of them, there is a degree of... Because you take it onto yeah. another level. Your sports career is only going to last until can we move you into another area? But I, I would, would you say that Britain's most successful sports man of, of the current generation... I'm trying to think of a joke, but I've forgotten Steve Guppy's name. Steve Guppy. <laughs> the, Steve Guppy's name? The, um, no, so Lewis Hamilton's probably the most successful British sportsman of, of, of his generation. He is, you know, a genuine world-class great, albeit at something that is not a sport. Unlike rugby. You think I don't like rugby? You wait till you hear my views on F1. <laughs> the, um, this is another pod. Write it down. He, write it down. We're short on content. <laughs> but is, is Lewis Basically, Hamilton... he's, he's Britain's leading engineering experiment crash test dummy. Yeah, exactly. 
the the although he, he, he avoids the walls a little bit better than a crash test. He's a rubbish yeah, crash okay, test yeah, dummy yeah, to yeah, be yeah. fair. He's terrible he? at that. <laughs> but so Lewis Hamilton is, is as good a sportsman as, as Britain has at the moment. Engineering project yeah. pilot. Let's <laughs> is Lewis Hamilton at, at that same level of fame? Because I would say he he somehow isn't. And I wonder whether there's more so Chinch is right that there's that there is a, a degree of probably of, of seizing the moment in PR terms that, that can, with, in some of those cases, not all of them, I'd say Andy, Andy Murray, I, I would be staggered if Andy Murray has set out to become a mainstream star. Um, but you know, someone like Tom Daly maybe would have, would have thought, actually, how can I capitalise on, on my success? Bradley Wiggins, was he another one? Would he have yeah, Wiggins he made is, the move to a degree? Yeah, and I think Wiggins, and if you, if, you, if you kind of compare, say, Bradley Wiggins to Chris Froome, I think... Cycling is a sport, by the way. You know, cycling is definitely a sport. It's definitely yeah. a sport. Okay. The okay. cycling is a good sport. Two that wheels good, four wheels bad. No, human power good, <laughs> engine bad. That's really Mercedes bad. The um the if it's if you've got an engine, it's not quite a sport. Sorry. Although speedway is a sport. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Jim. <laughs> Sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Speedway. Uh, speedway is uh, a sport. <laughs> what a sport that's cancelled when the wind changes direction. <laughs> Yeah, arcing round patches speedway. of gravel. Is that a sport? Speedway makes cricket look reliable in its scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Wiggins and Chris Froome thing kind of shows that it's not inevitable because Wiggins is mainstream famous and Froome isn't. Now, partly I think that's to do with the Olympics, that Wiggins won at the Olympics. But also partly I think it's probably to do with personality, that, that Wiggins seems like a broader a broadly more kind of engaging cultural figure than Froome does. Froome is a bit like a man who, Froome, Chris Froome is just a man who's really good at riding a bike, whereas Wiggins has got a bit more about him. And I think that that helps if, if the mainstream has a personality to, to latch onto, because ultimately what they're interested in isn't your sporting excellence, because they don't care about the sport. They care about the personality that, that you can project to them. But I think with loads of these examples, so there's, there's lots of different stuff at play. So Hamilton is partly because F1 is now on Sky. So Lewis Hamilton is massively famous, but he's not quite, he's not furniture famous. He's not, he's not Hugh Edwards. He doesn't pass the Hugh Edwards test. That's exactly, that is exactly, it's a lot of it comes down, the minute you take the sport away from terrestrial television, you are accepting that the, the chief exponents of it are not going to reach that furniture fame. England's cricketers, another good example, James Anderson, the greatest fast bowler ever. Yet when he broke one of the many records he's broken in, in recent years, didn't make it to the shortlist of sports personality of the year, which is, a, is another barometer that we use. And boxing is, is yeah. another yeah. one. That, you know, Barry McGuigan was one of the most famous sportsmen that I was aware of growing up. But with boxing not even being on Sky, but on pay-per-view, means it doesn't get anything like that level of exposure. And Lewis Hamilton would be absolutely massive if the Formula One was still on BBC One on a Saturday afternoon. Well, boxing provides you with the best example of furniture fame that there's probably ever been, and that's Frank Bruno. Frank Bruno did Panto. That's, that, that obviously doesn't really apply anymore, because Panto's a bit low rent for people of that level. But Frank Bruno was, became a part of the national consciousness as boxer Frank Bruno, but he, he was really just Frank Bruno. Like, you didn't, you didn't ever... I mean, I don't think I ever watched... I, didn't, I certainly never watched Frank Bruno fight. No idea whether he was any good or not. He was probably better than me at boxing. Boxing, definitely a sport. Um, the, no engines there. But just no in case all the boxers all. come round and uh, you have a... Yeah, but Frank, the, some opinion on that. Frank Bruno's an interesting <laughs> point because, it, like, like Tom Daly, and not to disparage the incredible feats of any of these people, but if we're talking in, in very kind of clinical terms... 
Frank Bruno was famous before he became the world heavyweight champion. In fact, it took him a long time to eventually become the world heavyweight champion. That was seen to be the crowning glory on what was already a mainstream fame that he had developed. So it was Frank Bruno's personality. Barry McGuigan, yes, he won the the world um, title, but it was considered to be his personality that helped sell you know, if you like, his brand to people. Frank Bruno had a brand. That was, and we're talking about cricketers. Mm. And, and Andrew Flintoff, Freddie Flintoff, was the last, if you like, great mainstream cricket hero because it was on Channel 4 when England won the Ashes in 2005. But it was considered as well that he had a personality that crossed over into the mainstream and he's had a very, very successful television career since then. So you do need, as you say, the difference between yeah. Wiggins and Froome and even somebody like Damon Hill to Lewis Hamilton. You do have to have something which is marketable in terms of your brand and your personality to or be able story. to make that crossover and or a story yes an emotional story which quite a lot of the ones we we're saying haven't crossed to the mainstream is because they don't have a story they're just really good early 90s boxing provides another brilliant parallel there which is eubank and ben so chris eubank became a massively famous figure and he's still famous now like 30 years on from from that fight and that was Nigel on itv ben, that was on ITV yeah. and 20 million, 15, 20 million people watched it. But Nigel Benn, most people who don't like boxing will, will not have heard of Nigel Benn. But they were at the same level because they were fighting each other. And that will be to do with the fact that, now whether Nigel Benn's not, it's not, yeah, not going to say Nigel Benn doesn't have a personality, but he doesn't have as marketable a personality as Eubank. He doesn't have a shtick. And to some extent, all of these people have got a shtick. Tom Daly has a shtick. But there are other ways if you don't have a stick. So other factors that come in. So attractiveness is really important. That if, if you're good looking, you will become famous. Chinch is pointing at himself. He's wrong. The, <laughs> if, you, if you're good looking... You, this is why I haven't made the crossover. Exactly. That's what's held yeah. you back. Yeah. So Peter Beasley, Ian Dowie. It's been a, been a curse. Chinch the, needs what Frank Bruno had, which is a catchphrase. Then yes. he would be able to oh, neatly... Okay. Then he'd be yeah. able to neatly shift from satellites to terrestrial television. Could we you think so? A catchphrase for Chinch to use during commentary? Could that be another podcast? Right. I can drop it in just for listeners of the podcast to pick up on. So then that would yeah. force them to listen to my work. Excellent idea. Yeah. So attractiveness really helps. Class, as with everything in Britain, is, is probably central to it. That the, well, the Olympics are sport for people, people who don't like sport. Because everyone understands who wins a running race. It's really easy. Toddlers get it. That attracts, when we talk about this mainstream audience, what we mean is inherently really kind of like a middle class audience. It's the kind of white middle class audience that watches, that provides the kind of bedrock, I guess, of, of, of cultural discussion. They watch the Olympics because it's the Olympics and everyone loves the Olympics. Same with tennis. Like they don't watch, they're not watching like random tournaments in Kazakhstan. They just watch Wimbledon. They don't like tennis. They like Wimbledon. They like the event of Wimbledon. So Andy Murray becomes incredibly famous. And as Steve says, once you take sports off terrestrial TV and particularly off the BBC, you lose that audience just they will not follow to Sky Sports F1 or to Sky Sports Cricket or whatever. They, they will watch whatever is on their television when they turn it on and if it's the olympics or wimbledon it feels like a big event they'll watch that and there was probably a time in the 90s when when the grand prix almost met that met that met that bar i guess it, but it doesn't now so lewis hamilton he's still famous enough i'm sure he's his favorite lewis hamilton's missing out on anything but he's maybe not hit that level of andy murray just just he's he's ghettoized out in in um on on 
subscription TV on satellite TV. So the class thing I think is crucial that you, you have to be able to appeal. It's the people who appeal to a certain type of the British middle class that's really important. And obviously factored into that is race. You probably stand the better chance of reaching that level of fame if you're white. You certainly stand the better chance of reaching that level of fame if you're white and, and well-presented and well-spoken. White, well-presented, well-spoken and playing a sport that is not associated with being working class, like, for example, football, that'll help. If it, especially, you know, something like tennis is a middle-class sport. And then if you're black, you can still make that transition. But that's where people like Bruno and Eubank, who, who are kind of depicted as characters, I'm maybe not intelligent enough to express it properly, but you wonder how much of that is kind of a way of making blackness acceptable to a white audience. They were slightly derided, kind of... those two, weren't they? Yeah, and, it's, it's, and Lewis Hamilton's, there's an uneasy relationship with, with Lewis Hamilton and, and the British public, and you wonder how much of that's to do with the fact that he's, you know, he'd become a politically active black athlete, uh, although, yeah, his tax affairs maybe aren't quite as in order as they ought to be. But also so him, him not living in the UK and Chris Froome yeah. living in the UK as well is, a, is, a, is an easy disconnect for the mainstream in the UK to believe in and to subscribe to. Because it's probably a hurdle, but I, patriotic. I think if, if Bradley Wiggins lived in Nice, then, that, then he'd probably still be quite famous. He'd still be as famous as, well, yeah, broadly as famous as he is. Hamilton, I think the tax thing, I, it, yeah, it's, it's obviously, that's an obstacle for people to, promote, to overcome. But I don't know how you separate out how much of it is the tax thing and how much of it is him not being white, genuinely. I, I, I think with Wiggins, the fact that he lives, you know, up a country lane on the outskirts of Wigan and looks like he could have been in Quadrophenia is a big reason. It, it, mm. it, that fits in with the, with the character thing that you were just talking about. Sports sometimes, as well as the mainstream, missteps this occasionally and there, and there aren't crossovers. You, you do occasionally get circumstances from an Olympics. Taekwondo. Britain was brilliant at Taekwondo at a recent Olympics. And there was suddenly, well, we've, we've, the cyclists have transitioned after their rise to prominence in terms of their sporting endeavours into the mainstream. Maybe Taekwondo is the next sport to do that. And I remember suddenly there was a, an attempt to make the Taekwondo World Championships interesting. And, and sometimes what people within sport and outside of it misunderstand is that success at an Olympics is about winning medals for, for Great Britain and national pride and to an extension nationalism. So that doesn't always mean that because millions of people have tuned in to, to watch a, a British athlete win a gold medal means that that sport is suddenly going to become more interesting to them outside of an Olympic cycle. And Taekwondo was a good example of that. Suddenly, you know, large numbers of journalists traveling to the other side of the world to cover a, a Taekwondo world championship. And it was like, well, no, no, we're interested. They're winning medals for, for Britain at an Olympics so we can see our name creeping up above Germany in the medals table. But outside of that, it, it doesn't cross over. So mistakes can be made. It, it isn't always a consequence. Oh, success on mainstream television on a Saturday evening at an Olympic Games leads to more it's, widespread appeal. It's sport for people who don't like sport, the Olympics. It's, it's yeah. something you dip into every four years. And well, every two years, one of the, big, one of the weirdest things they used to at the, at the NYT was the fact that they count the Winter Olympics as an Olympics. It's like it was an Olympic year. And you'd be like, is it? When? It's not. <laughs> 
You mean the snow one? This no, that's not an Olympics. That's a winter Olympic year. Men don't win anything there, so therefore it has not registered. With it. Unfortunately, a lot of Americans do. It uh, might be. It might be an Olympic year them. for Norway, but not for not for any actual countries. Like, they they're gonna, that, they're gonna struggle to keep the water warm for the swimmers all the way up that mountain. <laughs> But that, it's interesting that you mentioned the NYT, Roy, because one, one of the things that you have to do is to, to, to bring soccer to an audience that might not necessarily already be engaged with, with soccer to the extent that you had, your audiences in the past had mm. been. And, and I appreciate that quite, quite a lot of this discussion has been framing the mainstream uh, as a negative. And, and none of us, particularly me, given the rant earlier, want, want to appear like we are just outside of that bubble and bitter as a result. Once again, we have to, on a daily basis, I particularly enjoy storytelling to the mainstream audience, uh, those sports stories. And Rory, you have to consider how to tell your story, which stories to pick and how to tell that story. And it is in the art of the storyteller, it should be in the art of the storyteller to bring that story if it isn't necessarily considered at its outset to be one of those mainstream sports stories that most people would cover We've listed them all during this podcast, but it is up to that person to be able to tell the story. And there is blame absolutely uh, to be put at the door of those people within sport who say, I'm not going to make that effort to do so. I just wanted to add to that, that, that three of us will have been in newsrooms where the phrase came out of the mouth of somebody that works specifically on news. I don't understand sport or I don't get sport. And that was seemingly an acceptable position to take. They would never utter the words, I don't really understand politics, or I don't get the weather, or is business important? Yeah, yeah. You, you wouldn't, so, and, and this is something that we, without being sneery about it, we do need to remember and bring into the course of this conversation, is that because sport is so popular to a section of society who are incredibly knowledgeable about it, it is something that makes people outside of that environment a little bit anxious about getting it wrong. A, a couple of examples, I remember once a newsreader who'd been left the sport overnight talking about a Lancashire batsman being out ill. He was actually 111 not out. <laughs> and I remember leaving a, a line in my early days uh, working in, in local radio, leaving a line for a newsreader about the Oldham coach, Tony Philiskirk, picking the team for that weekend or whatever. And the newsreader had got as far as Tony and then bailed out. And I was, when I spoke to him later, I said, why, why, did you, why did you not say his full name? He goes, oh, I just don't understand sport. And it, it, it completely threw me. I said, you said the Iranian president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, earlier on in the... <laughs> And, and it is a massive barrier for people. Sport, we, yeah. we are all within that environment where we, it, it's, it's something we've always known and an interest and a passion for it and a knowledge for it courses through our veins. But it is something that completely unsettles a lot of people. And I think that ties in with this, this conflict that sport has with the mainstream. And as, as Hugh said in his rant at the beginning, some people just don't understand it and they, they don't, it is easier to remain in that position of ignorance or to accept that position of ignorance than to try and get up to speed enough to feel comfortable. No, no, no. I'm going to get Steve to write my rants in the future because that's exactly, exactly what I was trying to say. There is a, it's how you react to it. Having 
been unsettled by it, nervous about it, even ignorant of it, or maybe even to the extent that they're jealous of the feeling that they don't have that they see so many other people having on a regular basis. How do you then react to it? Do you react to it by shutting yourself off and say, and this, this should not be the restricted to just a conversation about mainstream content providers, producers, editors uh, of programs and sport. It should be a conversation for all journalists to have all of the time. How do you best try and cross that divide if there is a divide between you and understanding or appreciating that particular subject? The idea is, is to bring somebody in who is able to tell that story in a way that at least engages you if you are a representative of the audience that watches your program or listens to your program engage with that person if that person has the ability to infuse and explain and tell that story in a way that crosses that perceived divide then that is how you should in my opinion attempt to bring or blur the lines that clearly have been marked a little bit too furiously over the course of what I can only say is my experience. And again, only a small part of my experience, but one that has happened, happened often enough for me to write 700 words on it. The problem is that, as Steve says, there is, there is the kind of, there's an in, in and out group effect to sport and people who are in the in group tend to straw on the out group and people in the out group will, will generally respond to that by, so you know when Michael Owen said he'd only ever watched eight films? And everyone's like, what, what are you doing? What do you mean you've only, you've only ever watched eight films? You've got, oh, I think, I think films are boring. And um, there was another example of someone who said they didn't, said they didn't like music. And I remember, I remember thinking, like, you, that's not a sentence you ever hear of like, oh, yeah, just, just don't really get music. Don't really see the appeal of it. Presumably, that, those aren't particularly kind of... Is it of, Little Mix? It might have been, it might have been yeah, people who, yeah. who had yet to see Little Mix the Search. <laughs> and... Which, like, which I might, must add, would be a baffling decision to make. The, um, maybe, maybe they don't like music, but they do like searching. The, <laughs> I don't like music, but I love a quest. The, um, so presumably, like all these aspects of culture that, that people take as read as being kind of universal are not. There are kind of in, in and out groups with them. And it's I often think, a generational divide as well. Yeah. Slightly older people, when they see something which is cool for the youngsters, they will reject it. On, yeah, it's a, a simply on account of the yeah. fact that yeah. it is being enjoyed by it's somebody not who is not for, part of their generation. It's like TikTok. It's, it's like it's not for you. So you, you tend to, we, we all do it, literally all of us do it. Like it, this, this thing is not for you. So you tend to be like, oh yeah, it's rubbish. Yeah. But really, if you were 20 or whatever, then you'd be like, you'd be bang into it and you'd know who all, who all these people were. But as you're nearly 40, you'd be like, well, this is ridiculous. Imagine being famous for that. <laughs> you're not even on Little Mix the Search. This, is, <laughs> this isn't proper fame. And the, um, so I, I think that, we, we probably forget a little bit too easily that none of these things are universal, that we assume that everyone is doing this. There's loads of people who just don't really like listening to music. It's fine. Um, or don't like watching films because they're quite long and some of them are boring and some of them are scary. And that's the movie review show with Rory Smith. The, <laughs> the, um, All of movie history. <laughs> some, some films, scary. The problem that football has in particular, rather than other sports, is that whereas tennis kind of intrudes into the national consciousness once a year with Wimbledon, and the Olympics comes around every four years and, and everyone kind of gets into it, as Steve says, for reasons basically of national pride. It's not that they really like fencing. They don't, they don't care about fencing. They just want to see the British flag on the medal table. Football is just there all of the time. And I think that increases the resentment, but also makes it harder for people within football to escape the, the kind of the football zone of fame, where you can be incredibly famous to a, to a vast section of people, but still, you know, obviously a minority, but the, the mainstream has no interest in you at all because it's, 
it's just so constant. It's every week, every, well, every three days, really, for nine months of the year that you're doing stuff. So people resent how much of it there is. It seems to, like Kate would tell you, Kate, Kate is, is fully in that stage of the year where she's a bit, a bit like, how is there more football on again? This is ridiculous. Are they not tired? Uh, she's tired, let me tell you. She is tired of there being football on. But each, she, better, she better hunker down for the winter because there's plenty not, to come. Let me tell you, Steve, I have not told her about December. The, um, the, <laughs> Even existing, let alone the football. <laughs> I know, she'll be furious. But the, I think it makes it harder for the players to, to become properly famous because, A, there's quite a lot of footballers and there's a lot of football, which means that the story moves on really quickly and personalities maybe don't have enough time to develop and get their hooks into, into mainstream culture, into that core kind of middle-class demographic, as well as all the resentment the class-based resentment that there is about football being a slum sport for slum people played in, played in slum stadiums that still lingers in British society. So it makes, I think the bar for footballers is much higher than it is for... Te- Tim Henman has to get to like one semi-final in Wimbledon and he's massively famous. You can have a player who scores hundreds of Premier League goals and they won't reach that level of fame. That is the mental contradiction, isn't it, about football being a working-class sport despite the fact that we are constantly referencing sport now to the point where it is so expensive to watch elite level football that it's being taken away from its working class roots, yet the perception persists. Well, that, show, that actually shows the difference between the mainstream and, and the football section of kind of culture is that in football, the conversation is football has left its working class roots. Yeah. That conversation has not permeated the mainstream at all. And permeating the mainstream uh, is something that we'll talk about next week in this beautifully arranged, completely planned uh, idea that we developed over many, many, many important (coughs) high-profile meetings. Uh, And we have decided that we will talk about footballers crossing over into the mainstream and how that happens, why that happens, and what happens to them uh, thereafter on next week's Set Piece Menu. I love a plan when it comes together. It is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is an Andy Hitchcock tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed. Now, in the past, we've used the soccer story for hopefully a bit of, a bit of fun. We've also kind of, kind of touched some raw emotions along the way as well. And I was, that's what I wanted to do today. And I actually have done some writing. Look, I've written down loads of stuff because I feel this is an important uh, message that I'm, yeah. I'm maybe going to get across. Hugh, We've all it's done on that. a different level, mate. It's on a different level, this. But I did actually speak to Hugh because when we all meet up for these, these Zoom chats, Hugh and I are always the first to arrive. The real talent, Stephen and, and uh, what's the other guy called? Rory. He tends to come along a little bit later. So we were doing our kind of pre-pod stretches. And I said to Hugh, look, I want to I talk about a subject here. Do, do you think it's right for me to do it on the soccer stuff? And we have done things in the past about when I retired and how I felt. And people seem to... The listeners seem to like that type of stuff. So I thought, what they like to it me when recently? you retire, Chinch. Yeah. They like it when I retire and yeah, stop playing. But they, again, they, they seem to enjoy, again, getting under the skin of a footballer and a brilliant broadcaster to find out the person beneath. So I thought that's what I wanted to do today. And this is probably, it is probably the most personal admission probably I've, I've ever made. Because as a player, as a broadcaster, and as a person, it, it must have come across that I've had plenty of struggles along the way with kind of self-esteem. I've always been riddled with kind of doubt about my abilities, whether it be as a player, broadcaster, as a person. And criticism, it really does. I, I do find criticism hard to take. So <clears throat> I think I have this, or I put on this kind of confident, cheerful persona. I think a lot of people do that. It's kind of the attitude that you use to, to maybe shield yourself from Kind of the world from your, your true self and how you really feel about things. You're trying to hide away a little bit. But I think over the years, the feelings of kind of inadequacy have always been around for me from being a kid. I can remember it being the case to 
you know, I'm 51 now. It's hard to believe when you look at me that I am that age, but I still have these kind of worries that, that resurface on a regular basis. But going back probably three or four months now, I probably had the most frightening episode probably in my life, really, probably the biggest crisis in confidence that I'd ever faced. And there were personal and maybe professional reasons why it happened. But I take broadcasting, I know at times I make a big joke about it, but I do take it very seriously. And it's very important for me to get it right for the viewers. But you've also got to remember it's a job for me as well. It, it does keep my life ticking along, those of other people around me that depend on me as well ticking along. So there's a, you know, I feel I have a lot of responsibility in, in the job that I do to myself and, and many people. So kind of when my faith in, in the ability to do my job, it, it was so weird. It just basically overnight just kind of shattered. It just completely went as I say, for, for different reasons. And it was really, truly frightening. I never thought I'd actually be able to kind of get back how I did the job, how I felt about doing the job. Again, I felt kind of powerless. The anxiety I felt was, was truly unbelievable. I, I, I dreaded, and that's the only word I can use about going to work, picking up a microphone, filled me with absolute terror and, and, and dread. It was a feeling as if I'd kind of been punched in the chest. I just felt physically and mentally so awful. I think a game at Preston, I was up on the gantry at Preston. That's the closest I've ever got to basically putting the microphone down, getting in the car and going home, feeling I, I just simply wasn't in the right frame of mind to do it. I, I, I don't know how, but maybe just the years of experience, I managed to get through that. And I thought, well, I've got to try and sort this out. I, I need help with this. And this is where, you know, I've spoken to you guys about this. I spoke to a lot of people at, at Sky about this, because apparently there's a lot of kind of performers in many ways that go through this kind of maybe stage fright or anxiety and it does happen but I felt as though it was only happening to me so I spoke to a lot of people about it I got some professional help as well I spoke to a brilliant um, psychologist Rebecca who has dealt with a lot of sportsmen a lot of kind of high profile people who are in front of camera and and, and put themselves out there about this type of thing and the, the difference it made to me was was extraordinary how I felt about myself and the feelings that I was having they were unusual that in a way they were kind of normal for a lot of people so going through all this and getting an enormous amount of help with it has really kind of shown me and probably understand more than ever that when I hear of current players former players celebrities members of the of the public struggling and talking about mental health issues I, I don't ever now and I probably used to do you know roll my eyes and think oh here we go again and people feeling sorry for themselves but the fear that I had, the anxiety, the, the terror that I felt. Um, sh clearly, a lot of people are in a similar position as well. Depression plays a huge part in people's lives. It's so uh, prevalent. And of course, with everything we're going through with, with COVID and everything else, I'm sure it, it's trying times for absolutely everybody. But I have to reiterate, if I hadn't had the people around me, the, the friends I had around me, the, you guys on the pod, it, it's been extraordinary. I wouldn't have been able, I don't think, to have carried on. I remember speaking to Hugh about this and saying, look, and I, well, you probably remember Hugh, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And you said to me, no, 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 you, you, you can't think of that. You've got to change things. So I actively made, made kind of um, the move to get help with this, speaking to my friends, speaking to professionals. And it has kind of, it's still an ongoing process. I still feel even working last weekend, I, I still feel at times that, that terror when I pick up a microphone. So it's something that clearly isn't just going to go. It's something that I have to work with. But it's my understanding now much more than ever you know, you hear talk about mental um, illness and, and mental problems, and especially with what's what's happening in the world. And I do understand it more than ever. But I, I am incredibly thankful for the people around me that enable me to to kind of get myself back together and go out and hopefully do um, as good a job. And hopefully, in time, that will settle and the job I do will become more enjoyable. Um, 
but it, it, again, it, is, it, it seems as though it's, this is going to suck us all feel sorry for me, but it isn't because I think it will chime with so many people out there, our listeners, it, whatever work that you do, whatever job you're in, whatever responsibilities and pressures you have, it, it does come to the fore in some way, and it certainly did for me. But the, the help I had, I, I simply wouldn't have got through it. I would have just down tools and just stopped. And I, I do now realize that would have been the worst thing to do. You have to get help, work through it, because I can do this job. I know I can, and I am a decent person. But again, getting to that point, at the point I was at seemed a million miles away. So I can't thank you all enough. And again, be very interested to see with listeners if they want to send in some stuff. I'd be really interested in, in kind of hearing their stories about, about something similar. But it's a really trying time. But thankfully, things are kind of moving forward now. Well, I'm very glad that not only you were in a place where you could speak about it, but I'm also very glad that there were those around that could help you through it. It's something that, we, that we've spoken about a lot. I remember going back to, to after you you were divorced, you were, you were feeling particularly low. And it is during those times that I think you realized as well, reaching out rather than uh, yeah. hunkering down uh, mm. some of the best things to do. Rory, after Rob died, I know that you mm. felt, felt that too. Stephen and I have both had much less significant things to consider over the last, what, 10 years or so with work issues and work problems. And I think I'm not going to speak on behalf of all of you, but I hope you echo the comments that Chinch said that genuinely that time spent with each other and the opportunities afforded by each of us to speak to the other about issues is something that will that will chime with with um everything that that a lot of people are going through particularly as you yeah. said right now and i think we understand that the power of the pod and what we do again we are talking about football but also we're talking about a lot of other things as well and the correspondence that we get or you you and steve get hugh it really does show you that you're hitting people on a really personal level and the amount of stuff away from sport and football that we talk about as well is incredible. And I think, again, that is, you know, if you talk about why we're here, is it to kind of illuminate and make people think differently about football? Of course it is. But I think the community with what that we've created, we're all very different characters, but I think it's pretty obvious to me that we create this community that people want to feel part of and are part of. And I think, again, that is one of the great strengths. I don't see the pod as us four. I see it as that wider family, that community. And again, talking about things like this, again, it, it, well, what, what has this got to do with football? It's got everything to do in terms of, of my life within football and my, my ongoing career. But it also has to do with people. And I've always talked about a lot about football as being people and persons. So never, never get too far away from that, how people react, how people behave. It's all down to the people that they are, not the jobs that, that they do. So I think that sense of community, and that's when I was writing this, I was thinking about, again, listening to all the correspondence we get and how much of it is so personal that people give up. And you can only do that when you feel you're in a really safe place. I think a lot of people can empathise with the, the emotions you've just described there, particularly at the moment, Chinch. Was, was there a, a particular moment, a catalyst for that that self-doubt or or was it was it just the overwhelming because we all work in environments where we are we we certainly feel like we are being judged on everything we do and whilst we we enjoy the 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 privilege of of what we do there there is that that sense of uncertainty that comes with with having to deliver to an exceptionally high standard every time you go to work yeah this is why speaking to people and this is what i've done speaking to people who who do the jobs that that we all do that is incredibly helpful because you all understand the pre- and what what you do you're trying to get to a point is understand how difficult the job is that we do and speaking to someone professionally speaking to to rebecca about this she was saying do you understand how incredibly stressful the job is that you do and how few people not just do it but do it well and what what it gives you is an understanding 
of, of the world that you live in and the pressures that you're under and acceptance that that is how it is. And don't be surprised if you, if these kind of feelings of inadequacy come along, but they've always been there for me during my life anyway. So again, for someone like me to be involved in this kind of environment, it's maybe more difficult than someone else who maybe doesn't feel about themselves the way that I do. I maybe have to battle that a little bit more and need a little bit more help. And it isn't just being told you're great, it's a pat on the back. It's actually being, having the job laid out in front of you and being made to understand just how very difficult instant reaction and yeah, you are being judged on every word and every comment and every point of view that you have. But hopefully we've, I've, I've worked on getting better and better in that. But again, when, when the, the doubts and the feelings of inadequacy start to set in, there's a reason why that's happening. It is personal and it is to do with the job that you're doing and the difficulty of the job that you're doing as well. So again, that's why I keep saying the people around me that I've spoken to, I'm lucky I've got friends who are colleagues. It's not as if I speak to people about work that I don't know, who, who don't know me intimately. I think I have to work on that level. They have to know the, you have to know the person that you're dealing with before you can try and get to the root of the problem. And I, I feel really, it's not necessarily the job that makes me feel the way that I do. I think it enhances the feelings that I have about myself and it's actually getting to grips with those feelings. And that's what a professional can do for you is break that all down, your family life, what you've been through, the kind of traumas in your life, you know, losing parents, losing even you know, recently I've lost a, a couple of dogs as well. And people who don't have dogs won't understand how traumatic that can be. And I'm trying to then say, well, it's normal if this happens, doesn't it? But actually dealing with it, again, it's opened my eyes. I've never had professional help therapy in any way before. But I tell you what, I'd recommend it to anyone. It is, it is extraordinary. But again, it wasn't necessarily about the job. It's breaking you down as a person to understand how you feel like you do. Um, Rory, would you like to say anything? And if you would, we'll finish with that. No, well, not really, just other than that obviously i very much love chinch and i'm glad he's doing okay don't make me cry don't make me cry i don't want to cry i'm not crying it's quite good to cry it's quite helpful having to cry every now and again I don't cry a lot I, i'm not a big uh maybe that's part of my problem maybe i need to cry a bit more let it out let it out it, don't keep it in you do feel better for it it's strange i'm not a massive crier but i do mm. occasionally um well in the last year will properly go every so often and you, you do you, you do feel quite a lot better afterwards. So I've, n I've never, um, I've never really, I've not yet seen the need to, to seek professional help. Um, but several of my family members have, and they found it incredibly helpful. And it's, it's actually quite reassuring knowing that it's kind of in the back pocket if you need it. If, if I feel that, that it might be helpful to know that it's there and, and yeah, there's, there's obviously no stigma about it. And it comes incredibly recommended because whenever you don't through any form of trauma, it, it can only help what we probably all subscribe to is the idea that uh, at least within this uh, little uh, foursome we are able to to unload things and, and feel better with the responses although sometimes when you unload things one member of the group just stands up and goes and makes a cup of coffee but you know that's that's absolutely <laughs> I was fine still listening the headphones were on it's a really long cable keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com and genuinely if anything that uh, we've spoken about today particularly just in the last few minutes has resonated with you please use us um, as a sounding board and, and Chinch will have a read of anything that you send that you feel is uh, too private to be broadcast at setpiecemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule and apologies that that room this week is a little bit extended but uh, we hope you understand why thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen to you all for listening we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed we could have done that as a pod on its own. Yeah, Sorry, guys, I've ended on a bit of a, uh, a can flat, flattish note there, haven't I? But again, can we really do a banter outro now? No, prob probably not.
I have thought, I've, 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 I've had a thought about your catchphrase, Chinch, so you can cross over to the mainstream. Something that embraces your, your two major joys in life. Okay. Football and takeaway food. In the final five minutes of a game, just imagine a world-class goal, a late winner. That's a sizzler. A sizzler. Is he talking about the goal or what he's eyed up on the Chinese menu? I like it. I like it. Yeah, but people do use that word, don't they? I need something completely unique. It's better than an 87 with chips, that one. <laughs> that would work. We'll go with that.